into God's Word this morning ourselves. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter number 2. And we had a a lengthy reading there, really, but uh, as you see, there's a lot of material there, and it's all kind of important in the context. And uh, that's why I wanted us to do that. But right now, I want to single out a verse to uh, call to your attention. It's kind of a key verse in the scheme of things for today's message, although we really are going to be looking at the, the set of verses But I want to call out this key verse. We'll read this, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and we'll jump into today's message. Look at verse 17. The verse says this, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Now note this last phrase in particular, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. We'll hold that thought a few moments, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll be looking into this passage today. Father, thank you for your great love and kindness to us. We thank you for faithful men of God who have served in the, in the past, and Lord, we don't always understand why we're not able to continue that, but uh, we think of Pastor Palmer today, pray you'll comfort him and bless him. We know it won't exactly be now that he hears this tape, but when he does, I pray it'll minister a special blessing to his heart and just uh, cheer his life and also his dear wife, June, and encourage them. And uh, thank you for the friendship that I personally have enjoyed with him over the years. And I pray, Father, that you will just continue to bless him and help him to know he's loved and help him to know that people here are thinking of him even today as we've gotten this message. And Father, now as we look into the Word of God, we just desire that our hearts will be touched and enriched and it will be drawn closer to you. And Lord, I Pray on behalf of God's people that you'll just give us the ability now, Lord. Many things are on our minds, especially in this busy season of the year. But we ask you for help. We've come here to worship you. And so we know it really isn't the best thing for us to be distracted uh, and to be thinking about things that are outside of the service, uh, beyond the service, when we could be uh, opening our hearts to the truth of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts. They give us a measure of victory in that, Lord. We know it's a struggle sometimes. And then, Lord, especially we think of anybody who might be in the service today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. And I pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would always take the gospel words that we try to give from the pulpit and use them in hearts and lives and draw people and men and women and boys and girls to yourself. And now, Father, go with us. Help me, I pray, as I speak this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For I pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the broad idea for these three times that we have to do this. We actually have a fourth time, and I I didn't quite know that at the time. We have Christmas, well, we have the Christmas uh, special service next Sunday night would give us a fourth time, but I didn't know that at the time I was deciding on this series, so I, I have something different for you on next Sunday night. It will be a Christmas devotional. But these considerations of these three Sundays, last Sunday, this Sunday, and next Sunday in the morning, we've been looking at the broad idea in the Bible of why Jesus came. And as I said last week, I know if I were to ask you, why did Jesus come, you would have an answer. Everybody here this morning would have an answer. And many of the answers, I think, would probably be very good answers and correct answers. Uh, I'd like to see if maybe I could challenge you through this series to take it another step. And can you put a Bible verse with the reason you give? And that's kind of what we're doing. Um, There are many fine statements in the New Testament that really go to the heart and core of why Jesus came. And we looked at a paramount example of this last week. 
Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You can't get much more plain than that, right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul adds, of whom I am chief. And so last week we looked at the message, Salvation One, and I was really pleased as I prayed about this because I was looking for something that would tie in in that first message to our observance of the Lord's table, and I think that it did very, very well. This week I want to bring to you another message that's doing the same thing. We're going to look at a statement. That statement is contained notably in verse 17 towards the end where it says to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And we're going to try to look at this and get a little bit more done with this. And the message title this morning is Propitiation Done. Let me say a quick word about this. You might think this is pedantry. You might think this doesn't really amount to much. But, you know, folks, it never hurts us to be as correct as we can be when we're talking about the Bible or telling people about the Bible. So I want to tell one on myself. You know, when I was a, a young man just sort of a teenager and a young man just sort of starting out doing this kind of stuff, I'd come across that word propitiation in the Bible. And by the way, um, one of the great strengths and blessings of the King James Version of the Bible is the fact that it uses the great doctrinal words, justification, propitiation, reconciliation, imputation, these great words, and does not dumb them down. And we really, I mean, it's not wrong to explain them, don't get me wrong, but we really need to know those great doctrines because the truths that they embrace are the very things that are the underpinnings of our faith. Once in a while, we have something like the rapture or the incarnation that we maybe don't have that exact word in the Bible, so then we come up with a good word for that. But many of these great terms are in the Bible. And so I would come across this, reading a verse or something like this, and I would say propitiation. And my mother was in the audience. Well, it didn't take long. I'm not even sure we made it home. And she said, son, it is not propitiation. You don't pronounce the word that way. It's propitiation. It's a soft T sound. So, you know, I did like every young, younger teenager and younger man. I ignored her. And the next time I got up and said propitiation. And she called me on it again. And so I decided, well, maybe she knows what she's talking about. So I decided to look it up. So if you do, you'll find that to be true, and I've never done it since except when I've told that story on myself. So when you read that word, propitiation is the right way to say it. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how's he pre preaching a sermon on propitiation this morning when we didn't see that word in the Bible reading? And it's actually here. It's just translated a little differently here, and it's in verse 17. In the end of the verse, it says to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. But literally, and you may have a marginal reading on this to confirm this, um, the word is propitiation. I've puzzled many times over why the translators for the authorized version decided to use reconciliation when they translated the term here. Because when you look in the original language and you look at the even the Texas Receptus, it's not a difference of manuscripts or anything like that. You look there, and it's, it's clearly the word for propitiation. And as I said, the King James Version of the Bible loves that term and is certainly not unfamiliar with that term. We have it in a number of different places. Um, even here earlier in 1 in John, for example, I'm sorry, in 1 John we have it, 
But uh, he, the Bible says in 1 John 2, 2, that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then you read in verse 10 of chapter 4, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter uh, 5 and verse 9 that we have propitiation through faith in his blood. So it's not exactly as if uh, the, the, the King James Version of the Bible is, uh, is unfamiliar with this term. And I've puzzled over this many times. And the only thing I can really come up with without reading something they may have written uh, to, to explain that is that perhaps they wanted to emphasize more the effect and reconciliation is an effect of propitiation, but take my word for it, look at any commentary you want, look at the New King James or anything like that, and you'll find that it's the word propitiation. So I hope that's adequate explanation and doesn't throw you off, but that's why we're talking about propitiation this morning. Now, I'll tell you what, in the distinction between the message that we looked at last week, Salvation 1 from 1 Timothy 1.15, and where we are this week with Hebrews chapter 2, and we're talking about propitiation done. What we're going to see by way of contrast is moving from the general to the specific, because what this does is now it gets into explaining a little bit how it is that Christ Jesus saves sinners, right? So last week, you can tell, you have a very broad statement there. Why did Jesus come? He came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I am chief. But did you ever stop for a moment and ask yourself, well, I guess one of the ways that my mind goes to, to, to putting something like this would be to say, did you ever really think about the nuts and bolts of salvation? How does it really work? And I realize there are many things in life that we, we just enjoy the effect. We don't really care about the nuts and bolts. It works, right? So when you, you go out here this morning and get in your car, uh, a lot of you folks go, don't give a hoot how the thing works. You just give a hoot that when you put the key in there and turn the ignition, the thing turns on and it seems to operate smoothly and doesn't make any bad noises and you get down the road and everything's good. But boy, when it's not that way, somebody's got to know about the mechanics, right? Somebody has to understand how that thing works so that they can fix it for you. And so in this particular case, I would think it would be a matter of interest to Christians to know the nuts and bolts of salvation. How does it work? How, how in the world was God able to save sinners? How did he devise a plan whereby, on the one hand, his perfect justice is not compromised, but by which he is able to show mercy and forgiveness in his great love to sinners? Because one thing we have to understand is, is God doesn't just sweep it under the carpet. God doesn't just ignore it. God is not sentimental that way. God looks at us and knows who we are. He knows we're sinners. He knows we're lost and undone. And he knows that the wages of sin is death and tells us that if we die without forgiveness, that we'll be separated from him for all eternity. God knows all that. So he has to find some way to deal with sin. If he's going to show us his love, if he's going to show us his mercy and his grace and grant forgiveness to us in a home in heaven, he has to have a way to do that that doesn't compromise his holiness, his justice, and his righteousness. So it should interest us, and that's a little bit more than about what this message is about this morning. Now, here's a little hint. We're going to talk about two key thoughts, because as you get down through this passage, we're going to find out that it actually, we're working towards propitiation, but 
Propitiation is tied up with something else in this passage, and this really does strike very close to home. In fact, I would say the author spends more, talking t- more time talking about this in working towards this idea of propitiation than he even spends on the idea of propitiation itself. And that is one of those great doctrines where we don't find the word that we use for it in the Bible, but it's by common acceptance the one that everyone knows. And that's what we think about at Christmas, and that is the incarnation. All through the chapter. So look, for example, at verse number 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. How was it that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels? So that he might taste, by the grace of God, death for every man. Well, obviously it was through the incarnation. Because God is a spirit, so if Jesus did not come into this world and take to himself human flesh and become the God-man, he could not have done those things. That's the incarnation. He develops it more in 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And he says more about it in verse 16. If you didn't get my point, he says, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. And of course, a great byproduct that comes from that is, as he says in the beginning of verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Look at verse 18, where he develops that idea more. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or help them that are tempted. Succor just means in the old English to help. It's not like you're going to sucker somebody, you know, like the slang that we have today. Spelling's different. Sucker there means to help someone. So think what it's like when you come across verses in the Bible like Jesus wept. And then you think about the fact that when you have tears, when you've lost a loved one, that Jesus understands. Jesus knows all about our troubles, all about our trials, all about our difficulties, because He took to himself human flesh and went through living this life. I'm always encouraged when I read that story about the woman on the well, or the woman at the well. Jesus was the one on the well. But you kind of have to look at not sitting on a hole in the ground, but something built around it. And I always think about that, that he was, the Bible says that he was wearied with his journey and sat thus upon the well and was thirsty. And I think, you know, those human touches just really help to understand. And I, I keep saying this. I don't know if it'll ever come true or not. Maybe it'll just be one of those things where when we get to heaven, just because we're, we, we will know even as also we're known that we won't have to have this. But I just keep thinking how nice it would be. You know, like if you go to, to Ken Ham's The Creation Museum, you go in the planetarium. Anybody ever been? Oh, you got to consider doing that sometime. Yeah, good, and Evan has it. Play, plan a vacation and go out there, and now you can also go to the Ark, which is not on the same exact location, but close enough at hand. It's really worth doing that. I haven't been to the Ark part yet, but I've been. You go in that, that, that planetarium, and it's just like you sit back there and just watch, and it all becomes so real. They have very comfortable chairs, and you just kind of lean back and... Hopefully you don't take a snooze because it's really interesting and it's just also realistic. And I, I just want to get a ticket when I get up there to heaven. I just want to get, get a ticket and go into a great big heavenly 
uh, for lack of a better term, excuse me, I don't mean to offend anybody, but movie theater, sanctified one, and just kick back and I want to watch. I want to see those stories in the gospel. I want to see the woman at the well coming and Jesus seeing her and that conversation. I want to see blind Bartimaeus sitting by the road and calling out to Jesus and all those people coming up and saying, hush, 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 hush. And then Jesus calls for him and oh, the master calleth for thee. Be of good cheer, as if that was their idea all along. I just would love to see those things happen. It just, to me, I, I, I see those stories in my mind, but I, I want to really see them as they happened. And Jesus knows all about our troubles, and so we know this from the incarnation. Of course, what is the incarnation? Is essentially just the idea that God becomes a man. And it does encompass the virgin birth, because when Jesus came into the world, he came through uh, what we call the virgin birth, Mary, who, of course, was uh, the child was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And uh, although that particular aspect of things is not touched on here, uh, we certainly think about the virgin birth and the, the coming of Jesus into the world, the incarnation at Christmas time of the year. I read a story about a woman who, uh, well, she was the mother, and she wanted to go visit her daughter in the hospital. I'm not sure just what type of an accident the daughter had that it would, uh, would account for these symptoms, but her damage was such from the accident that she retained only the sight of smell, or only the sense of smell. And so her mother was grasping and grappling with the idea of how in the world can I possibly uh, have her to know that I'm there if she can't hear, if she can't recognize my voice, uh, you know. And, and I think we would come up with various ideas. It might be a different kind of a squeeze or something that they knew from you. But the mother hit on this idea. She knew that there was a particular perfume which if she wore, her daughter would immediately associate that with her and know it was her. And so she wore the perfume when she went to visit her daughter. And you think about that simple idea for a moment. You think, well, obviously the, the perfume is not the mother's essential nature. It was just a way of communicating her presence. And so when we think about the body that Jesus took, it was real. But we know that that's really not his essential nature. But it certainly was a way of effectively communicating his presence and we can talk about the fact all day long that God is with us, and he is. And we talked about that earlier, but you can't see him, right? And if you think about the difference between the incarnation and when Jesus came to the earth, God became man, and John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Well, think about what that meant, because the author of the Hebrews is the very one who tells us, if you were to turn a page back sooner, he says this in his, in his, I think it's verse 2 of chapter 1 actually, <clears throat> that God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us. Can you finish it? By his, son. Uh -huh, by his son. Well, think what it was to be Abraham. Now, Abraham got a heavenly visitor in the form of an angel, but that just sort of makes my point right? We call these pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. But so many times, this diverse and various ways in which God spoke, someone might get a vision. Someone might have a dream at night. You know, that type of fleeting kind of a thing. But boy, the, the real uh, 
effective type, I mean, the, the thing that would mean most to us, the way we are as human beings, when you could actually talk to Jesus. Well, aren't you glad you can talk to him? But, you know, it's just going to be different when, I mean, it's just going to be the, the, I mean, look, folks, all those times that you talked to him and couldn't see him, all those times that you sensed his presence but couldn't feel him, that's all that's just the lead up to what heaven's going to be like. It's just to prepare us for the glory that awaits us when we burst on that scene and actually see him and experience him. That's going to be a fantastic thing. But the incarnation was just a, a quantum leap forward in terms of God fulfilling his promise and, and being with man and, and all of this kind of thing. And we know the angel even said that, that it was fulfilled by the prophet saying, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And this is all what God is accomplishing through salvation, see, because sin is the deterrent. Sin is the problem with all of this. And so as the thing that I want to say, though, at this point is as, the, as momentous and, and as incredible as the incarnation is, God humbling himself to become a man, making himself of no reputation, taking upon himself the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, as Paul says in Philippians 2.7, it's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And why I say this is by no means to de-emphasize or belittle after spending all this time promoting how wonderful the incarnation is, simply to point out that, you know what, in the Christmas season of the year, we see manger scenes, and I love them. We have one in our living room. I think, you know, it's on its last legs, but I still enjoy it. And all these types of things. And I, I love a live nativity and, and this type thing. But you know what? There is no salvation in the manger. As wonderful as it is, as wonderful as it is, there's no salvation there. Salvation's not to the cross and the empty tomb. And so it's a means to an end. It's getting us, pushing us forward, pushing us in the direction that um, everything needs to go in order for God to accomplish his particular purposes. And the writer tells us a little bit about what this end goal is in some of these verses before we actually get to verse 17. But while he's still talking about the incarnation, so notice verse 14, uh, for as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh, he also himself took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Okay, now let's do a little explaining here. Did Jesus destroy the devil? I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's a trick question. <laughs> I want to explain something is the reason I call your attention to this so you're awake and, and don't mishear what I say. You know, if you look at um, precision bombing, like if, if uh, the United States decides that, uh, okay, we've got these terrorist facilities and we've got the intel and we're going to deal with that. And, you know, you get some amazing footage anymore because they, they seem to capture all this stuff. And I've seen some of these things where you're watching. I'm sure there's a whole lot more than what they declassify sometimes, but I've seen these things before and, and I'm interested in that kind of stuff, so I always look. 
And it's like you're looking, and all of a sudden, you're looking at the strip of land or something, you know, and all of a sudden, it's just like, boom, 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 boom. These things are hitting. And then you get the confirmation back from whoever's in charge of the mission. The target has been what? Destroyed. You saw it, right? I mean, you saw those bombs hitting. I mean, there's nothing left. Things blown to smithereens. So the devil isn't blown to smithereens. That's the point that I'm making here. But there is a sense in which he was destroyed. And here's the sense of what that word means. Not destruction in the sense of blown to smithereens or gone out of existence, but in the sense of to break the power. So right now what happens is everybody in this room, apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, is in bondage. And you have a fear of that bondage. That bondage promotes a fear. Why? Because we're sinners and the wages of sin is death. And so they're coming a day when every one of us is going to die. And we're chained to that. that. That's something that we can't escape. And if you don't have the knowledge of your sins forgiven, you don't know Christ as Savior, that's a fearsome thing because, well, we know what that is according to the Bible. But So there is that fear that is created by that. But let's look at it this way. Um, how many people here this morning have ever been scratched by, scratched by a cat? A bunch of you. Yeah, you know, a cat can do you some serious damage. I mean, I, I discovered that when I teased my brothers. And, I mean, if they get you in such a way that they can rake you with those back feet, I mean, they can, they can really put a hurting on you. But some people go and have them de-what? Yeah, some people go and have them declawed, I guess, so they don't get, you know, a cat can't pull up the carpet and... You know how they go do that. If you don't have that little thing there, a up and down thing or something, they can go, they work your, work your carpet over or work something else over and then you're mad at them. But you're not afraid of that cat scratching anymore if you've had it declawed. Or if I bring Mike Tyson in here and I say, I need you to go two rounds with Mike Tyson and you say, oh, no, not me. But if I handcuff his hands behind his back, now you can manage, right? Why? Because what you've done is, is you've broken the power. It, it, you don't have that fear any longer because the aspect that's fearful, the damage and the problem that comes from that, that that's been rendered void. It's been nullified. That's what Christ did by his work on the cross of Calvary. There's no fear of death any longer for the Christian. I mean, I'm not standing in line, just as you're not standing in line, but I'm not afraid of it. It can't hurt me. It can only usher me into the presence of the Lord. Now, I don't know. I suppose there's ways to die that can hurt for a moment. But whatever comes, comes. But death can't really hurt me. And yeah, I'm a big chicken. I'm like you. I'd just assume the rapture come. But it'll be as God plans it. I'm just grateful that I don't have to fear it any longer. And so this is something he mentions to us in the text. And then, of course, it says to um, deliver them. Verse 17. Uh, hold the thought here just a second. Um, 
and deliver them. Verse 15, deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So, well, he's just canceled the debt. This, this deliver here is the idea of to release. So Pastor Palmer was concerned this morning to be released from a commitment. Now he's going to, that, that bothered him, right? Obviously for him to speak to us and tell us, that, that bothered him. Well, he's going to hear this and he's not going to be bothered anymore. His peace is going to be restored. Before, see, death was, we weren't set free from that. We weren't released from that. We, but now, that doesn't bother you anymore, right? I mean, it, it's a fact of life if the Lord doesn't return first, but it's not weighing on your mind. It's not bothering you in the sense that you don't know what the outcome or what's going to come after that. So all of these things are working towards giving us. And finally, we do need to take a moment and talk a little bit about propitiation And uh, so we come to that in verse number 17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or as you read it there, reconciliation. So how, how is it that God accomplishes the nuts and bolts of salvation? How is it that he satisfies his justice on the one hand and takes care of sin on the other so that he can extend grace and mercy to us? And that's what this term propitiation is all about because what that means is it's a related concept, as I said, by like cause and effect to reconciliation, but propitiation itself is a separate idea. And it means to satisfy or to placate. It, it addresses the hurt or the wrong or the offense that's been caused by the sin. And uh, you might be able to sort of predict from hearing that, that uh, a lot of the liberal theologians really don't like propitiation, and so they find a different way to translate it, which is one of the reasons I'm really glad that versions like the King James Version preserve the term, because we need to understand, you know, you can talk about God's love and gray. I'm really glad that God loves us, but you know, we really don't understand the extent to which God loves us until we understand his wrath and anger against sin. So when the liberal theologians come along and they don't like propitiation because it suggests that God is, needs to be placated, God needs to be satisfied, that we've injured God, that we've offended God, that there might be some chance that God would be angry with us. Well, that's what the Bible says, right? In fact, the Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. The end of John chapter 3, probably the most famous chapter in the Bible, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the what? wrath of God abideth on him. Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. But then we come along to Romans chapter 5, and we read in verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So wrath, the wrath of God is in the Bible, and this is why propitiation is so precious, because how is it that God is placated? How is it that God is satisfied? How is it that God's injured justice, the offense done to God by our sins, how is it that that's resolved so that the barriers can be broken down and God can have a relationship with us when we turn to him? 
Well, that's propitiation. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary by the shedding of his precious blood. His sacrifice there, as the writer says in chapter 2, verse 9, right where we are in our chapter, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. See, now we're getting to this. This is the mechanics of salvation. He had to die on the cross of Calvary. He had to shed his precious blood because without the shedding of blood is no remission of sins. Or as the writer says a few chapters later in chapter 9, verse 26, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. By the sacrifice of himself. That's the mechanics of salvation. To put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. And so when we come down to the end of this text and we come down to the end of this message and we come to ask ourselves again, okay, why did Christ come? Last week, he came to win salvation. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This week, when we look a little more deeply at how exactly that was accomplished, we find that by coming into the world and by becoming a man, he was able to go to the cross of Calvary shed his precious blood, and because he's the God-man and he is infinite and the value of his blood is infinite, he's able to absorb the punishment for all of our sins and grant to us his forgiveness and his righteousness because his righteousness is also infinite. And Jesus did this by the sacrifice of himself, and we refer to that particular aspect whereby he faced the wrath of God on the cross of Calvary. It became dark for three hours. Jesus experienced something there he had never known and will never know again. And that is separation from his father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what this is all about. And Christmas reminds us that God did something about our greatest need when Jesus Christ came to suffer and die on the cross of Calvary. And I remind you again of one of those verses I quoted earlier that mentions propitiation also here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want to tell you a little story that will draw this whole idea of reconciliation and propitiation together since that's how the, 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 the translators chose to render it here. I mentioned that it's at least related by cause and effect. And the effect is reconciliation. Let me tell you a little story. I don't know if you've ever heard this story before, but years ago when I encountered this story, I, I just marked that down in my mind as one of my favorite stories. It's just every time I think about this, it touches my heart and helps me to understand what I'm preaching to you about this morning. But Everybody, I think, in the building this morning has at least heard, even if you haven't read a lot, of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the poet, the 19th century poet, English poet. But her life is an interesting story because she was, of course, originally Elizabeth Barrett. How did she become Elizabeth Barrett Browning? Well, she married Robert Browning. <laughs> That's how that happened. But it wasn't a happy story. 
for the simple reason that, at least for this part of it, her parents, notably her father, were uh, diametrically opposed to this marriage. I don't know the details of that. But they threatened if she went and married Robert Browning to disown her. She, of course, did marry Robert Browning, and they did disown her. And the couple moved to Italy. Though she was English, they moved to Italy. From Italy, faithfully and consistently, almost every week, she wrote her parents a letter. Those letters have survived. And those letters have become really known to uh, us as some of the most beautiful of classical English literature. But what those letters were all about were attempts at reconciliation, trying somehow to placate her parents, trying to restore the relationship. So you get the idea of placate and restore, and that's reconciliation. So this is connected, cause and effect. Well, after about 10 years, she was quite surprised to receive a, a large package from England. She saw that it was from her parents, and I rather believe this was probably the first communication that she'd had. So she was eager. She opened the box, and her heart just broke and fell because in that box was every one of those letters that she had written for the last 10 years unopened. That's hard. I couldn't live that way. And I can't imagine those parents. I mean, that to me, I've only had one experience like that in my life, and it was only one letter. But I remember a number of years ago, we had a situation, and I, I won't get into all the details, but we had a situation, and it was a family that was known to us all, that had attended over, t over parts of the time and so forth. And later in years, one of the sons developed some difficulties, mental difficulties. I mean, I don't mean he was crazy. He just had the kinds of things that were like imbalance. You needed the medicine. As long as you're on the medicine, you were okay. But you know, sometimes people don't like it and they want to get off it or they think they're okay and they get off it and then they, eh, you know, you, you just... And so gentlemen appeared on our property one day and of course we had a Christian school there. And I told him, I said, you can't be here. He had been involved in some erratic activities and I just said you can't be here and I said please don't make me go call the police he said go call them I said okay that's what it's coming to and I walked back in the building to call the police he reached up with his hand with one of those signs there that says no parking church parking only or something like that reached up with his hand and just batted that thing like that So I, I had to tell him, you can't come here anymore. You can't be on the property. And uh, sometime after that, he passed away in sort of a untimely way because he was quite young. And, uh, I mean, as far as that goes, young. And when the funeral was coming about, I sent the parents a card. And I really reached out to them. I knew they were upset with us. I, 
There was nothing I could do about it. I couldn't help it. They, they just would not see the situation logically uh, as to what our responsibilities had to be to the, the kids and the people. We couldn't afford to have someone on the property who was behaving erratically and couldn't be depended upon to, to act normally or take their medicine. And they just wouldn't see it logically. It took a great offense over it. I got it back in the mail unopened. Broke my heart. Because I know what I put into that letter to try to reach out to them. And they never got the benefit of that. I thank God over time it's gotten some better. I met up with the parents at a funeral and they seemed to like the service that I brought that day and it just broke down some barriers a little bit. Oh, I can tell they're still there, but... I can't imagine that. I couldn't live that way, and I'm glad that God couldn't live that way either. I'm glad that God sent letters to us. Lots of them. I'm glad that God wrote letters of love and reconciliation to us in this book. And if that wasn't enough, God sent an emissary of reconciliation, his own precious son, to explain in terms that everyone can understand that God loves us in spite of our sin, wants to forgive us, and wants to give us a home in heaven, wants to be our personal Savior. That's Christmas. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love.